Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thanks for being with me today. I can hardly wait to get things started. We've got Guide Talk coming up, and then Hour 2 is going to be uh, John and Pam Bloom. They're back after a short summer break, and they're going to be joining us. We call that Deep Thinker Thursday. Um, not to be confused with the first hour of the, of the show today, because <laughs> I think this is Deep Thinker too. So I've got a power panel on board, ready to go. I've got uh, Pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish. And Dr. Peter Kapsner, and then Secret Agent Man. Secret Agent Man. Justin Jepson is with us as well. That's the team. Gentlemen, how are you? Uh, Great, good, Bill. good, Bill. <laughs> uh, I'm doing so much better now after hearing that song, Bill. Wow, thank you for that. That's that's the best walk-up music I've had for anything. So. <laughs> I agree. Now, I guy talk. You know, I always want listeners to uh, give us topics, questions. Let us know what it is that's on your mind. We can do our very best to answer whatever you have. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. If you like email, you can also email me, Bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. Radio.com. So here's a question that uh, was sent in last week from a listener, and he wants to talk about Matthew 18, 18, where it says, I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. That's the New Living Translation. Uh, the King James, you've probably heard it this way, or the, the New King James, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he, he's looking for an explanation, and he said, if I pray this literally for my prodigal spouse, does this prayer violate her free will? Can I tell you the Lutheran view on that? It's called the Office of the Keys, but it comes from Scripture. Okay. And, and, and it's basically whatever you bind on earth, and he's giving the authority to the apostles mm-hmm. to bind and loose. And I think he gives it ultimately to all Christians. When you see someone is is sorrowful for their sin, you can loose them and proclaim to them the forgiveness of sins. If you see they're hard-hearted and impenitent, you bind them and you say, until you repent, your soul's in trouble. Uh, another way Jesus put it was he breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit in John 20, I think. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. So Jesus has given to the church, believe it or not, the authority to forgive sins, which is why a lot of churches confess sins at the beginning of the service, and then the pastor announces the loosing. They stand in agreement with what God has. Yes. They they don't have the power to forgive sins. They're standing in agreement. Well, it depends how you put it. I mean... That you, wraps up our time. With Tom <laughs> no, no. I mean, Thank listen, you so much for joining me remember, today. Remember, no, I mean, I don't, as a pastor, I forgive your, your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. It's done by Christ's power, not our own, obviously. Of course, of course. But it's still, you know, they marveled, it said, that God had given such authority to men when Jesus forgave sins. And I think that 
is also given to the church. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the mistake we make as Christians is that we want to individualize these texts and everything. And the U is plural. I mean, there's no way to get around it. The U is plural, which means the whole church. So if the whole church comes together in agreement and binds something, it's bound. If the whole church comes together and looses something, it's loose. Now, as a pastor, you're there to speak on behalf of the whole church. Mm -hmm. You have the biblical right to do that. But on the other hand... Mm -hmm. In terms of this gentleman uh, talking about his spouse and that, um, I'd have a hard time telling him he's got the authority to do that. Now, he has the authority to pray for his spouse. He has the authority to pray the Lord will bring her home. Mm -hmm. He has the authority to pray the Lord will change her heart. But the binding and loosing, he would have to go before the whole congregation and bring this up as part of the, the process of the church. And then the church together would do that. We don't do that much anymore in Christianity. We have democratized to Christianity to the point where, you know, a board makes all the decisions or once a year in an annual meeting where the early church, they always met and they agreed together one way and, or the other. And on this Paul topic. handed a man yeah. over to Satan, if you yeah. remember that. Yeah. And I heard of a church here in town that they had a missionary who was living in a penitent sin. They had a special service and they handed the missionary over to Satan for a good reason, Paul says, in order that his soul might be saved in the day I of think Christ that's Jesus. Good. That's biblical. Yeah. yeah, I think along alongside of that, I mean, just to add to what the Toms have already shared and just keeping in mind the, con- the context <laughs> of, of this, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you, may, or you already mentioned the context of the church and, you know, this, this idea and language of binding and loosing. Um, shows up again, in, you know, right before this, two chapters earlier in Matthew 16, where he's, he's talking to Peter mm-hmm. and in giving him the keys to the kingdom. And then again, here he's talking the second time he uses that word, the church. And and I think what's important here, that even that, that, that term binding and loosing was actually kind of a familiar phrase that was used among the Jewish tradition in terms of basically the religious system in Jesus's day of who they would have the authority essentially to get to determine like what would be permitted as lawful and what's unlawful or essentially who is in and who's out of God's kingdom. And I think it's you know important to keep in mind that Jesus here is actually flipping the script and he's saying actually the very people that you deemed as unworthy or as outcasts or left out or not worthy of the kingdom are the very people that I've gathered around me and that I've brought into intimate close fellowship with me. And they are actually the ones that I'm entrusting this authority to actually know the ways and the rhythms of the kingdom, and they, by my authority, get to declare who's in and who's out based upon my teachings. And and I think it's also important to keep in mind, you know, the, the, the I looked this up in the actual Young's literal translation, and, and, and it really, it actually brings up more of the, the Greek syntax where this is actually in what's called the future perfect uh, tense. So it's, it, it's, it's essentially saying this, that whatever you bind upon the earth shall have shall be having been bound in heaven, whatever that you would loose upon earth shall be having been loosed in the heavens. In, in other words, what has already been decided by God has, has already been decided, but we're actually just living that out in the context. So it's not like we're changing God's mind. It's actually us carrying out the will of heaven or the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's in heaven first, then on earth, but they actually begin to be, get to become the agents of God's kingdom and his kingdom authority here on earth. So I think to Tom's point, this this man, he's not, um, and I, I appreciate his concern for his wife, but I think he has the authority to preach the word, to pray, to share the gospel, um, and and really the, the authority, he has the authority to do that, and then to trust the results of that to, to God's sovereign plan. But you see what the Lord's always trying to do. 
he's trying to keep us from individualizing our faith to the point where personal is good. Personal relationship with Jesus is good. Private is where we get into trouble. And most Christians move toward the private. It's my interpretation. It's my belief. Mm -hmm. And he keeps saying, when you come together, when you act as the church and you come to one mind and one heart, then you have my authority. And I don't see enough of that in Christianity. Is Peter Kaffner hiding? (laughs) Is my microphone working? I kind of hope it's not. Uh, Speechless. Oh, no, it is. It is working. (laughs) We want to hear from you. Well... Yeah, I, you know, honestly, it just it's it's been fun to sit back and listen to the conversation. I don't really think I would have anything of major substance to add. I would uh, underline, I think, what Parrish was saying, and uh, in in the sense that this really was about a you uh, idea, and and uh, the idea of binding and loosing had its origin in Jewish tradition prior to Jesus declaring these things in, in Matthew eighteen. It was a pretty common experience for Jewish rabbis to 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 perceive that they had the power to then shape the community in terms of what was appropriate for life in God's kingdom versus what wasn't appropriate for life in God's kingdom. But but it was about a community shaping. It wasn't an individual shaping. And I think what we can safely say is that there does seem to be precedent within the biblical text that Jesus does give that same kind of authority to his uh, initial followers. But I think what's kind of crazy about that, um, you guys, is that those followers— were hardly of the pedigree of the Jewish rabbis who were seen sort of as the best and the brightest and the most studied of people who probably were leaning more into human wisdom in in their binding and loosing and their own interpretations of Old Testament Torah. And in this particular case, as you've referenced, Jesus is breathing upon them the Holy Spirit, which means that a bunch of failed fishermen and tax collectors and, and these other rabble of the day are, are through the power of the Holy Spirit working within them, becoming agents of God's kingdom to declare those things that are consistent with the kingdom for the community versus those things that are not consistent. And, and uh, so I just think that piece of it is kind of fascinating to me that reveals that uh, you better not be leaning into your fancy letters and your doctrine and your dogmas and all of those sorts of things if you are going to declare that which is consistent with God's kingdom. Uh, that requires the discernment of the collective on, uh, as the Spirit is active among them to do that work. So to to apply this to a husband and wife situation, I think it, that wouldn't be applied in, in any way, shape, or form to that particular kind mm-hmm. of situation. May I add to what Peter just said? Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you talk about this because it was the rabbis who had the authority in the Old Testament. The Lord is now spreading out the authority to the whole church, but it is the church under him as being the head. And I think that's something that we don't understand. I've gone to a lot of theological meetings. I've sat with some of the greatest theologians that have been alive and some are on with the Lord. But I'll tell you where I've learned the most is in adult Sunday school classes with ordinary people that come up with these words of wisdom, these words of insight or experience. It just blew me away. you know. And, and I heard what they had to say, and it made more sense than what I heard at some of those theological conferences. So the Spirit works through His people, and the people need to yield to the Lord. See what happens? Yeah, you know. Oh, go ahead, Peter. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to add to that, Tom, uh, too. I, it's funny you say that because I literally was on a phone call with a probably, I'm guessing he's probably a 22-year-old uh, master's degree student uh, where he's doing a directed study with me in one of my sexuality classes. And he was saying things that I thought, 
where where do you get that wisdom? It was yeah. just remarkable what he had to say and everything. And I, I told him, man, I'm stealing everything you have. I'm not going to give you credit, but I'm stealing everything. It was, it was really remarkable, the wisdom that he showed. And he wouldn't have the, you know, supposed pedigree to have that kind of wisdom. But there was insight. And I, I was really taken aback. It was great. Now, I've learned how to handle that in my books, Peter. I always say, someone once said, and then I quote them. It works really well. Yep. Can, before we leave the loosing thing, though, can I say that the importance of us loosing one another is the body of Christ. Yeah. It says in James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the early church would confess their sins to each other. And I think the reason we don't have victory over sin to a greater degree in the modern church is confession absolution is kind of out the window, especially for evangelicals. Uh-huh. And, you know, it, even though Lutherans are supposed to do it, they almost never do it. And so uh-huh. just just we need to reclaim the, the importance of proclaiming to each other the uh-huh. forgiveness of sins. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, well, I think that points to the priesthood of believers, right? I uh-huh. mean, the fact that Jesus was, he was recreating the people of God, and rather than that, that role of a priest being designated, you know, like Peter's saying, to someone with the right pedigree, that we actually step into that that place of that that privileged position really as God's saints, as his holy ones that have been set apart for his purpose. So I mean I don't know about you when you're talking about, you know, this whole discussion that just gives a, a bunch of hooligans like us, you know, on this guy talk show a lot of hope, right? <laughs> I mean like we're we're the ones that <laughs> <laughs> you know that he that he's calling out and selecting to to bring in, and so it, it, it for me it gives me a lot of hope to say, gosh, you know, it really uh, it doesn't matter, you know, in terms of my yeah theological training or experience or background. That God uses all of that, but ultimately, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's it's really about coming into that that relationship with yeah. Jesus. That it happens at an individual basis, to be sure, but yes, it's um, we can't we can't it doesn't stop there. It's it's how we live that out and flesh that out at a communal context. Good word, Justin. Yeah, indeed. We'll take a little break. We're wide open to your questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484 is that text line. I'll say it again. 877-933-2484. Be right back. song for God Talk. Thanks for joining us today. If you just tuned in, welcome. You can text us questions at 877-933-2484. The power panel is in place. All right, so yesterday I had this realization as I was talking to uh, Peter. You'll maybe recall this. When we were talking to Dr. Uh, uh, David Clark, I had talked about uh, the fruits of the Spirit, and he said, you mean the fruit of the Spirit? And I, I said, yeah, of course I meant that. But you know how stuff shifts in your brain and you think for how many years have I been saying the the fruits of the spirit and how we got to be careful about what we're putting in our head and what we are saying and how we're recalling stuff. So, yeah, yeah it was really interesting when he said that, uh, Bill, and he kind of took it as an aside, didn't he? And he said, well, I just want to clarify one thing. You it's just one big package that is one fruit of the spirit. And, and, and you had a, such a great example of saying, I, I sort of have always thought about it as you, there's this smorgasbord of different fruit that might be sitting out there. And, and I might decide I want to eat seven of the nine fruit, but you know, maybe self-control is out of the mix or, or something along those lines. And, 
And and I think, didn't you guys say something to the idea that you almost get a, a different computer hardwiring uh, when you give your life over to the spirit? I don't remember how exactly you said that, but but within that, the new operating system, an entirely different, yeah, ex- operating system. It was such a good analogy, and and just the idea that that operating system yields one big package of fruit that are all interwoven together as opposed to the idea of a series of independent fruit. It was it was pretty powerful. So this is interesting, Peter and, and guys, because uh, a listener from yesterday who heard that interview sent me a note today, and he said, in your fruit or fruits discussion yesterday, it got me thinking of what it means, too. I see fruit as meaning a bunch of fruit from one tree. So when we talk about one on that list, in a sense, we have received all of them, and they're all growing at the same time in our own tree. Hmm. What are they growing? Yeah. Oh. I don't yeah, get I was... it. <laughs> I don't quite get that. What, say that one more well, time, Bill. Yeah, go ahead. In talking about yesterday, we talked about fruit or fruits, um, and it said, I, I see fruit as meaning a bunch of fruit from one tree. So when we talk about one on that list, in a sense, we have received all of them, and they're all growing at the same time. So we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yesterday I was making a comment that I used to think that once you became a believer, all of those wonderful qualities, those fruits, love, joy, peace, were on a, a table, and I got... I then had access to them, mm-hmm. and it was my job to go pick up patience and work on it or go pick up gentleness and work on it. And I said, and then I really came to understand that inside of me was a new operating system. Sure. My heart of stone got taken out, and a heart of flesh got put in. Mm-hmm. I have a brand-new hardwired operating system, and I possess all of those right okay. now at that exact moment. Okay. Now it's to what degree I yep. exercise them. Because we can quench the spirit. Uh-huh. Exactly. We can. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and I think that that speaks to, I think often we think the marks of, you know, spiritual maturity isn't the gift of the Spirit, you know, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And I think sometimes, you know, when the Spirit, there are spiritual gifts, plural, but there's really only one fruit. And really, that's really the character or the qualities of Christ that are formed in us when we get that new operating system. And really, the Holy Spirit is, you know, it's not an app that we you know, pull up and say, hey, you know, I want to work on love today, and here's my app for that, here's my, you know, it, it's the, the Holy Spirit is the operating system by which the the fruit of Christ-like character is displayed in our life in an ever-increasing way. Yeah, you know, and, and I was looking at this a little bit further too, Bill, uh, Timothy Keller says that the real fruit of the Spirit always grow up together, they are one, and so sort of there's this fruit um, that you get that gets manifested then in all of these different kinds of ways, depending on the circumstances and the situation. And so uh, the statement that the characteristics of a spirit-filled life are interwoven, it is when they're seen together that they mark the believer. And so you can't really separate them out. You do somehow, they're all into kind of one reality that that maybe uh, patience naturally begins to manifest over here, whereas joy is manifesting over here. And so I- I'd want to look further at what Keller is talking about when he says that the real fruit of the Spirit always grow up together. Like, what does that look like? Because I know in my life, mm-hmm. if I try to break them down into individualized fruit, it seems like, you know, one fruit maybe is 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 fairly ripe and ready to be picked, and other ones I'm like, oh my gosh, that's mm-hmm. fallen to the ground dead right now. And so I don't really know for sure how this works, but certainly within the biblical text, it is one fruit that you get, and it's a variety of manifestations mm-hmm. of that fruit. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's significant, though. Do you, do you wonder, Peter, and, and you know, and Tom's too? I mean, the fact that love is listed first, you know, because I think when you think about that, it's like love, joy. Well, you you can't really be, you know, if you're loving, you're going to be joyful. If you're joyful, you're going to be peace. You have a sense of peace. If you're peaceful, you're going to be patient. If you're patient, you're yeah. going to, you know, in the way that they just kind of seem to cascade into one another. But I think I wonder if, you know, I think there's something significant that. If love and that idea of the chief commandments are all along, the prophets are summed up with loving God and loving others. That's really kind of the the, the leading part of that fruit. That the aspect of that fruit is is one of love. See, I'd like yeah, to really I, do think, think, I think it's. Go ahead, Peter. You're just going to just add quickly to that. I think it's Alice Willard who does say that that the fruit is so um, fully compacted into that word love with a variety of manifestations. So that's the primary form, which is what God's kingdom sort of pulsates with, right? I mean, it's it's defined by the love of the kingdom. And and so I think there would be some agreement among some, Justin, that that would say that love is the, is the characteristic that then bleeds and, and cascades, as you said, into a variety of things. It's interesting, and I would love to explore this deeper for a very simple reason. In my entire life, as well as my ministry, and I grew up in the church, I can think of one or two people that manifested all the fruit, at least from my perception. I know some that had great love, but they didn't have much patience <laughs> with other people. Or they, they showed, you know, great joy, and yet they were, you know, harsh with others at times. And I'm wondering, okay, how does this all grow up together? And I agree with what we're talking about, but how does it all grow up together in a way that manifests itself at the same time? Because too often... There are only aspects of my life that get manifested when I need them, and it's usually when I'm under pressure. Now, where somebody points it out and says, you know, Tom, for uh, somebody who preaches the gospel, you're not very loving. And I have to step back and say, whoa, you know, i got to look at that. I saw a great uh, poster the other day, and I'm, I'm going to be putting it in my office at home. It said, when God called you to his work, you know, take heart. He figured in your stupidity in the process. And that's the way I kind of feel about all this, because I wish I could see all that fruit emerging in me at the same level all the time. Uh, I hate to say it. I don't see it that way. I see some elements, but I don't see others. I, I was sitting at a, across from a youth director once, and he had a sign on his desk, God loves you, and I'm trying. <laughs> that's a youth director. So another comment came in uh, from Mike. There's no bad fruit that spoils the whole bunch? Question mark. I think there is. I, I think there are people that are gift. Uh, somebody, I'm, I'm remembering a, somebody who was a very gifted Christian speaker, but then he treated his staff like dirt. Mm-hmm. And I think it is possible to be strongly gifted, but be really lacking in the uh, spiritual fruits. You can have a spiritual gift, but yeah. you, so you got to work on both of them, you know. <clears throat> yeah, I think and, and going back to what you said, Bill, I was just going to say, too, I mean, I think that idea of the operating system is the helpful starting point with this is that uh, the fruit is is probably likely the operating system that we're given, because if you look at the verses prior in Galatians uh, to all of this, that the, before the fruit of the spirit, it does talk about the works of the flesh. And, and you could probably go ahead and uh, and try to single those out. You know, we're we're you know, more in bondage to some of these things than others when it says things like adultery or uncleanness or wrath or strife or fornication. And I think what we're talking about is that is, um, there's, there's a heart that is governed by sin that's going to manifest itself in a variety of ways. And, and, uh, and I think the karpos, to use the word in the Greek, or the fruit, is, is going to be more akin to the operating system that you're talking about that, that will then all over time grow up together. But I, I think... 
I would hesitate just when, when the biblical text says something that is singular, I would hesitate to pull it apart and emphasize one characteristic over the other. Somehow we have to keep the tension that that these things, though separate in their expression, are interwoven together somehow if we want to stay faithful right, to the we'll, text. We'll be right back with Guy Talk. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Be right back. back with Guy Talk. Panel is in place. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Got the Toms, got Justin, Peter, and uh, questions are flying in the door here. So this is good. All right. Uh, here's one. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is faced with a choice, his will or the Father's. He chose the Father's. I wonder what you fellows think Jesus's will would have been since it appears they weren't the same. He had a human will, and he had a divine will. And his human will submitted to the divine will. I think that's about the best you can do. He didn't want to be separated from the Father, right? right? Yeah. He he was human. we got to maintain two things. Jesus was fully God and fully man. If you play with that, you become a cult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we want, to, we want to maintain he's fully God and fully man. So in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. I think he's saying, not my human will, but... The divine will. I submit my human will to the divine will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes we get we can get in dangerous territory if we try to, you know, splice out Jesus' human will versus his divine will. And you know, yeah, I think sometimes when we think of like Jesus being tempted, well, that was his humanity being tempted, not his divinity. And you know, and I think there's there is some definitely some merit to that. I think it simplifies it, but I think there it's but we can't um, allow that to alleviate the mystery behind the unity behind the diversity of the two natures in one person. And I, th- I think, you know, I once heard someone say, you know, how can Christianity, or how can Christians say that, you know, Jesus is, in, is the only way? You know, the cross, the crucifixion, resurrection. I think, you know, and I follow-up to that was, you know, that's such a good question that even Jesus himself asked that, in a sense. Because in the fact that he said, Father, if there be any other way. And so I think it was so nuts, you know, there was that idea of, the the end game was still the same. He wanted the same thing as the Father, but it was the means by which that that was going to be done. And yes, God's will is both the means and the ends to that. But but I think ultimately we we see here the struggle that was real of Gethsemane, literally meaning the place of crushing, um, where you know where olives would be crushed. And we we see, I think, both his humanity and divinity here wrestling because he did not want to, yeah, he did not want to be separated from his father. And I think that's the thing that he was fearing the most and did not want, um, and was wanting some other way to have that to happen in order for salvation to be, to be achieved. But, um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I guess I, 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 I see where that coming from, but maybe I, I challenge that notion a little bit that it's as simple as it was his human will and his divine will. Um, yeah, together. let me add to that a minute. I think this is one of the most pivotal verses in the entire Bible that we continually miss. Jesus knew who he was. He knew why he was here. Mm-hmm. He said, I have the right to lay my life down. I have the right to pick it up again. I mean, come on, you got to know who you are to do that. However, mm-hmm. his interest in having the right relationship with the Father superseded anything he wanted that might be different. 
And why don't we do that? That is what Christianity is all about, that the, the will of Jesus should supersede who we are, what we are, why we are, in our decision-making, in the way we behave, in the way we think. Unfortunately, the church tried to establish that by all the rules. Follow these rules. Follow the commandments. Do this. Make sure you're in church on Sunday. The point is, if the relationship isn't there, the rest of it's empty. Jesus pursued the relationship and did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have a, a, a much more to add to that other than <clears throat> agreement in that. But Tom, based on what you're saying too, the um, the idea when it when it talks about in the biblical text that you're going to believe in something, or Jesus is inviting his followers to believe in him, and and he demonstrated that uh, in that time in Gethsemane as the crushing was happening. To believe in something is to is to yield and to surrender and to submit. And yep. uh, what's interesting in, in the New Testament of the Greek language, the tense of that word is that it's an ongoing and continuous action. I mean, it's it's something that you choose and you rechoose and you choose and you rechoose. It's it's the language of Paul when he says that I die daily. I I have to die to myself daily. And Jesus gives us that model that the heartbeat of the believer and what defines the believer over and against somebody who may not be a believer. Uh, it is not necessarily your your capacity to articulate the stories of the Bible or or a theology of the cross. Though those things matter, and and I you know I think we we can care deeply about them. But but the true core of the believer is someone who. Uh, in in halting ways, in faltering ways, and failing kinds of ways, continues to to come up and say, "Okay, I will yield and I will surrender again." And and Jesus, you know, thank goodness we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with a, with our weakness, right? I mean, Hebrews is very clear that he can sympathize with that as we feel crushed and perplexed and broken and confused. That um, the hardest thing to do is to yield in those moments. Uh, and yet that's what he did. In the hardest of all moments, he yielded. And and that is what it means to believe, and is to walk in trust towards a future that your Father will have your back, even in the midst of the deepest and darkest times. All right, here's another question, and I might even rec- include Rebecca in on this one. Maybe. I haven't decided yet. That would be breaking the Guy Talk mold, for that's sure. That's all right. We can, we <laughs> can I just say, Guy Talk plus one. Guy Talk plus one. Yeah. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to stand by I'm case. putting it on the table. I don't know. I'm, I'm for it. Let's hear All right, here's the, here's the question. Uh, I'm working with a couple that I've become friends with. We have a good, fun relationship. <laughs> we are deepening our relationship, my wife and I. We are, they are new to the faith, and they're living together. So I'm praying for them, and we start a Bible study tonight. Any scripture, that's a great way to share the depth of the sin. I have been rather blunt. I've got one, Bill. All right, Tom. Brought Rebecca, Brock. I, I, like I, a good one for Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, Thanks, I think she should follow Brock. Just to, <laughs> yes, I just do. To soothe, soothe things over. The verse, I agree. I, yeah. the, the verse I use all the time in this situation because it's so clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Uh, do not be deceived. Do not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, which mm-hmm. is what they're doing, nor adulterers, idolaters, homosexual thieves, greedy robbers, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, Corinthians, but you were washed, etc. And so that that verse, I would lovingly, humbly put that verse before them and say, you know, you're living in fornication here. According to this verse, you have to repent of that mm-hmm. if you're going to see the kingdom of God. And I would just humbly, lovingly share that. And and you know we I I I have a TV show and the question that came in for our TV show you know here's an elderly couple and you know Pastor Brock we really feel totally committed to each other and we're living together so is anything wrong with it and I said yeah 
you know, fornication is fornication if you're uh, 18 or 88. Mm-hmm. Plus, what are you teaching the grandkids? Yeah. If grandma and grandpa can shack up, why can't I, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, it just, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. <gasps> Rebecca? Does she have something to say? She might. Please. Oh, well, what could I say after that, Tom? Thank um, you. But I, <laughs> Not much. They, they, they won't be coming noted, to Tom for counseling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noted about that story, Tom, an uh, interesting thing, that that couple came and said, is there anything wrong with this? Mm-hmm. They came to you. They were seeking your advice because they know you're a man of God, and they wanted to hear what God's word about their situation would be. And that is the pivotal point. And I think in this situation where there's a, a couple with a Bible study, they're new in the faith, they're probably excited about learning more about God and and how his word applies to their lives. So let's just set that as an assumption that everybody's earnestly seeking God's will at this at this table. And so what I think your goal might be just as a suggestion is to bring them to the point where they ask you that question or they ask more importantly ask God that question. What do you want us to do? And maybe a direction for that might be to bring up God's definition of love and to study God's definition of love, because many times we have our own that we self-impose in them when we say, well, this is what we think love is and God is love. Therefore, God must be okay with how I work out my definition of love. And and that's not true. Mm -hmm. We need to understand that while God is love, love is not God. Everything that we call love is not God. So let's look at what God's definition of love is. And God's love is sacrificial. God's love is other-centered, and God's love draws boundaries. What are some of the boundaries that God says are true about true love? And what are some of the things that he calls us away from in order to display his love? What are some of the ways he calls us to live differently because of his love? And then hopefully a natural outworking of that will be, well, what do you think God would say about the way that I'm living right now and the way that we're, the choices that we're making right now? So if you can bring them through God's word to the point where they ask that question, I think then you'll be able to have that conversation. Otherwise, it might go down a road where it would actually end up destroying your relationship and your ability to speak truth to them unless they're willing to hear it. If the caller would give us their address for this meeting tonight, we'll get you there, Rebecca. I'll just crash. I'm yielding my spot and guy talk to that, that's for sure. <laughs> actually, I would take them, believe it or not, I would take them to John 21. This is after the resurrection. This is the, the, they've been fishing. And this is where they sit down and have a meal. And Jesus says, uh, when they finished breakfast, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Three times he asked him about that love. I think you were touching on the same thing, Rebecca. Unless this couple gets it in their head that their love for Jesus has to be greater than their love for one another, they will always find a justification to be together. They will always find a way to make it say, this is what I want to do. It is when we finally come to the point where we say, I want to honor Jesus in my marriage, in my life, more than I want to even honor myself, that I can start making the hard decisions that the world says, well, that's a stupid decision. No, it's the right decision because Jesus wants it. So get us your address. We'll get Rebecca there. She'll be great tonight. Oh, goodness. You know, Justin, as, as, I, as I were uh, listening to the talk, you and I had the opportunity after uh, one of our classes this morning where you were teaching one, uh, you're teaching Mark at the eight o'clock hour, and we were talking a little bit about divorce and remarriage. And, and um, I think that has implications. I would love your, your thoughts on some of this too, based on what we were talking about, is that it, the relationship between uh, husband and wife um, is so substantially different um, than the relationship between a male and female couple who... Uh, are saying that they're committed to one another, but there's something that happens that you, I know, have experienced as you've officiated weddings where God winds people together. And so 
the the union between two people and the vulnerability and the intimacy is so categorically different post-marital vows and what God does uh, up on that altar than it is pre-vows. And and I think many, many, many young couples don't understand that. We don't talk about it. We don't teach it often in churches. But um, I, I think, Rebecca, to what you said, if you can if you can lead down a path to some questions where they begin to ask questions, why is this wrong or what would be the problem with us living together and stuff, I think the pivot point really is those vows. But Justin, I'd be curious, you know, based on some of the conversation this morning, too. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, I think it I think maybe to tie up everything that we've talked about, the text that comes to my mind is is, is Ephesians 5, um, you know, and Paul's talking about being imitators of God as dearly beloved children, you know, walk in love, and um, but then goes on to say, but sexual morality and all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. But then he goes on, as you know, towards the end of that chapter to talk about this mystery of the husband and wife, the marital relationship as that really tangible physical representation of Mm -hmm. the relationship that Jesus has with the church as his bride. And I think, you know, um, I think, again, talking about that, uh, really just saying, okay, you look at the love that this couple has for one another, even to to, to ask them about, you know, what are your intentions with one another? Are you, you know, are they looking to get married or what is, you know, and talk about, you know, the that redefinition of, of love and how that is truly defined by the way Jesus loves his church and how our marriage is supposed to be a reflection of that, which then is meant to walk in, in, in purity and being washed in the water of the word. And so, um, I think it would really to kind of set up God's picture and vision for marriage and say, really this whole relationship idea is God's design and looking at him as the creator, um, of it he's going to know best how that's supposed to function. And, and so really, I think it, it'd be, it'd be, you know, curious even to use a text like that, that would help me to give a window, both a window into the future and into what God has in store potentially for them, if, they, if they're going to want to walk in his ways. But then also, as the word often is, it's also a mirror that reflects and help us, helps us to actually see more accurately the real condition of our heart as, as it exposes our motives and our actions for what they really are. And so um, that, that, that'd be the text that I would. But I, I, too, I think Rebecca, she's the ambassador for this. So I think she We should, agree. Yeah. We, we, we commission you, Rebecca. We yeah. lay our hands upon right you and wow. send you out. I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> this this is right. awesome. We're going to take a short break in just a couple of minutes. But let me ask this one. This is a question. I'm having a hard time trusting God with my future. What are some verses that I can turn to for hope and courage? Maybe I'll take a break now. We'll come back with answers. You're listening to Guy Talk <laughs> on the Power Panels here. We'll give you another uh, 90 seconds to come up with some great verses. Let me know. i got time for a few more questions. i got uh, still a few here that I'm going to ask, but uh, 877-93-FAITH. Be right back. Could you come back and see? We are back with Guy Talk, and I hope that you uh, gentlemen have come up with some verses uh, because our listener says, I have a hard time trusting God with my future. What are some verses that I can turn to for hope and courage? Well, certainly the, the Jeremiah passage. You know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Yeah, and and that would be a big one that I would want out there. There are probably dozens more or so. Peter and Justin, jump right in. 
well, how about me, Tom? I exist. I know you got scripture, yeah. Tom. I'm not what worried. I thought to, I was the host. Well, Bill gets to decide. He goes next. Yeah. No, I uh, and I had the sorry about that pregnant pause on the other side of the break. I thought you said we're taking a break. No, don't then, worry about but it. Not that we're so anyway. I what came to my mind immediately, and this you know pertains to the future, but for me. Um, I remember at a crucial juncture for me, it, this was back when I was trying to decide, you know, some big, some big things after I was, you know, graduating from college and, and, uh, you know, which wasn't that long ago, I guess, but, um, you know, you need to make a decision to have unclear, you know, what, what this is going to, you know, the outcome of this decision. And the Lord um, brought tw- Psalm twenty-five, twelve, which says, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. And then two verses later, it says that the secret counsel of the Lord belongs to those who fear him. And what that did is it led me on a study of, of what is the fear, truly the fear of the Lord. And then I started reading through the book of Proverbs. Just I took a chapter a day, you know, as there's around 30, you know, around 31, you know, days in a month, whatever, if you have Proverbs a day. And I just highlighted every time it talked about the fear of the Lord, it talked about wisdom, it talked about future and planning. And, you know, you, you come to verses like, you know, Proverbs 16, 3, that, you know, when you commit your work to the Lord, he will establish your steps. Of course, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. So I would, I would really encourage this listener, um, it was in help, so helpful for me, do a study on the fear of the Lord. And I think that really encouraged me just to have clarity over just what is that next step today and to not be overly concerned about um, what's going to happen tomorrow or even next week. So that's that's what I would share. And you know, Bill, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. Who are you and what have you done with that, Tom Brock? Uh, You've been in Notre Dame lately? That's Personality 14 coming out. Uh, well, one thing go. I would challenge the listener is this. I know it's hard to trust the Lord for the future, but what's the antithesis? Chaos? Mm-hmm. The unknown? Mm-hmm. Heaven forbid fate. I don't believe in fate, but I mean, you really want just the chaos to run your life? We have in Jesus the first one who came along who said, I have a plan for you. I know what to do with you. You yield to me, and I will take you on that path. Um, you know what? Buddha never said that. Muhammad never said that. There are no mm-hmm. leaders in the world that ever said that. He's the only one, and I think we can take him at his word. Mm-hmm. I think too, I'm just kind of... Go ahead, Peter. Just quickly, I just yeah, I just been kind of mulling this over in my mind a little bit too. I, when I think about the future and, and can sympathize with the listener about fear uh, relative to the future, I think it's one of those things like what what do I what do I anticipate my future? What do, what does it need to be in order for my heart to be at rest and at peace? And, and when I ask myself that question, it kind of reveals those things that uh, I fear might become idols in my life about the kind of future I require in order for my heart to be at peace. And, and maybe that has to do with a certainty of income, or maybe that has to do with a certainty of health, or maybe that has to do with a certainty of relationship that, that if I'm not careful, I can lean into those things and, and walk on those kinds of, of paths that if I'm going to lean into that kind of stuff to bring a peace to my soul, um, I, I, I'm actually then leaning into idols to do so. And so I think... 
when I think about my future in light of the fact that I'm that we all are living in a world that is in deep and desperate need of sort of the restorative reparative work of God that that we await for our king to return to set all things right and bring bring the fullness of that salvation back to this earth then then maybe I ask different questions about my future and I even anticipate different things about my future if I think of this world as not my home but as the place of exile from my actual home and and when I start thinking of, of my future as walking out in the world of exile, not my actual home, then, then words like 2 Corinthians 4 begin to make some degree of sense in my life, where the early disciples and the early followers that clearly were experiencing the exile uh, related to this world and, and the uncertainty of their own future and the pain associated with that, when, when Paul ends up writing, but as we have treasures and jars of clay, there's an all-surpassing power at work that is from God and not from us, even in the midst of all of this. So we may be hard-pressed on every side, but we'll never be crushed. We are perplexed, but we never will be in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says, so do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed and our light and momentary troubles in this earth are achieving an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And, and so my mind uh, turns itself to that passage that if I'm having trouble trusting God that my outcomes in this life are going to be positive, maybe I need to stop having the, the um, expectation that outcomes in life are going to be positive mm -hmm. according to the metrics that I want them to be. Mm -hmm. and, and I need to then uh, learn what it means to trust my shepherd, even in the valleys of the shadows and even in this world of exile, uh, that he will ultimately have my back and sustain me in ways in the midst of the exile that not only can I survive the exile, but I can shine his light in the exile so others are called home. I, I don't know of another way to frame it, um, but if we think this world's going to give us peace and shalom, we're going to really have a difficult time trusting because the world's not meant to give us that during this time of exile. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. All right, we we'll probably have time for one more question. How can I encourage my children to turn back to God? Part of it is is tough, but be a living example of loving Jesus, being willing to speak openly for him, being willing to stand up for the truth even when it's uncomfortable, pursuing the, the you know right things, change the priorities. I think the kids especially need to see the living reality. We keep giving them the theology, but they want the reality. And I don't know any other way to get the reality of Jesus into people's lives. The people that changed my life and affected my life all along were not perfect people, but people who truly tried to live out the faith and truly love Jesus. And to this day, and they've been gone for a long time now, I still think about them and get teary-eyed because they were pivotal in changing my life. So that's one of the biggest things right there. And if you have done anything to hurt your children, if you've made any mistakes— don't be afraid to go to them and say, I've sinned against you and against the Lord. Please forgive me. Amen. They need to see the power of Jesus living in you, and that makes all the difference in the world. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, I could just chime in. <laughs> I'll chime in quickly. I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I never know if the policy you guys give means, boy, that yeah. was profound, or boy, that was the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> that was great. Another pregnant pause. That was great. Right? Yeah. No, that really was good. I hope someone can save this bit. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> uh, you're you're going to be looking in the wrong direction if you're looking at me. I mean, with my five kids, too, I, I think I, I um, again, to use the word sympathize, that our hearts long as parents, right, for, for, the, for our kids to walk in the ways of the kingdom. And uh, it, that is one of the hardest things when they're not. And, and I know to the extent that I've been walking that out as a parent with our five kids, and there's ebbs and flows in their life and their interest and, and their desire to, to walk within it. Um, you know, prayer is such a cliche, but, but we have found that, uh, that is something yeah. that really is, is something happens <laughs> when we pray. And, and my wife and I have prayed often for our kids and it's amazing to see convergence of, uh, of events that then lead to dif- different kinds of questions. But I think to take the posture of patience and a bit of long suffering, if our kids are walking down different pathways and, and, um, and just, you know, be there and be ready to be that ambassador and to call them home when they come earlier in this show, I think were really helpful that if you can lead people along to that place where they then ask the questions themselves, if you try to beat them over the head with, with something when they're not ready to hear it so often, that is something that, um, may be counterproductive. And, but, but as you pray and ask for God for windows in their lives, uh, and then be ready, uh, to, to share that when those windows open, God does have a way of opening windows. It might not be with our timing, mm-hmm. uh, but it is a tricky question. There's no doubt. And, and I think, you know, when we see our kids struggling, we just want it to change immediately. And that's one of the hardest things is to stay in it with some measure of patience. Yeah, I have to say, you guys Good did word. an outstanding job today. And yet I had a text from a listener that said, hey, there could be a new faith radio spot. What would Rebecca say? <laughs> I love that. We like it. Yeah, we love it. So, What would we call it? Guys talk plus chick? Five, something like that. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that one, Tom. I'm honored by the inclusion. Thank you. Oh, you got wisdom plus four guys. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That one I like. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, uh, gentlemen, for being the uh, outstanding power panel today. Always look forward to this time together, and I'll see you next week. All right. That wraps up our time. We're going to have uh, coming up Deep Thinker Thursday, <laughs> which just sounds funny me saying after what we just went through, but... John and Pam Bloom are going to be with us. John, of course, is the co-founder of Desiring God. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.